Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Brussels is filling up again for the new political season, but the European commissioners are some of the people filing out of town. They're on an away day this Thursday evening and Friday to help Jean-Claude Juncker figure out what to put into his State of the Union speech in a couple of weeks' time. Other things catching my eye this week, the politics of Brexit are heating up once again. You see the German foreign minister, you see Emmanuel Macron and others really pushing Michel Barnier towards a pragmatic view on how to do a deal. And Barnier slightly warming up his tone and also, let's be honest, just saying the same thing again, but at a time when people were actually paying attention rather than at the beach. So that's all adding to some interesting, positive dynamics towards a Brexit deal. Gunter Oettinger was also pushing back very hard against Italy and their threats to veto the next long-term EU budget. He was even going as far to say that any country that claims it's a net contributor to the EU is making a fake calculation. His point is that the EU is more than the sum of its parts and that its money flows are cross-border and complicated. So a country saying that it gets less than it puts in, that's not fair because if you are doing border security, you are helping everyone regardless of whether you're receiving migrants directly if you're building a tunnel under the alps you're helping everyone regardless of whether the tunnel is in your country and if you're a little country like luxembourg even though you have no farmers you benefit from things like the common agricultural policy because you need to eat that's an argument that's up for debate but one that oettinger was pushing very strongly the final issue that really caught my eye is moves by serbia and kosovo to consider a bilateral border change That's one that's got the EU concerned and is going to definitely have a lot of tense debates around it before either of those countries could move forward. But it's intimately tied to their ability to come up with a lasting relationship and join the European Union. I'm going to talk more about that with Andrew Gray before we head into our main interview this week, which is with Julia Ebner, who is a expert in extremist groups. She actually infiltrated many of them and wrote a book about it. So we're going to hear from her and then go on to the podcast panel where we discuss Iran and a bunch of other thumbs up moments of the week. I've been up the mountain in Altbach, Austria, for a festival of ideas that's been taking place every summer since 1947, I think. So it's a really interesting gathering of young students, people who want to be involved in politics, in foreign policy, in other uh, big discussions, with the people who are actually leaders, whether they are presidents, former advisors, people who've been ambassadors. Like, it's a real mix of generations up there. And one of the issues that really flared up, that caused a lot of discussion, was what to do about the relationship between Serbia and Kosovo. So joining me to discuss that is our resident Balkan expert and podcast producer, Andrew Gray. Welcome. Hi there, Ryan. Now, maybe we should set the scene a little bit for people who aren't familiar with this issue. Serbia and Kosovo are neighbors. They're both multi-ethnic populations. They both want to join the EU, and they don't have a final settlement about what their relationship and borders are going to be. And we've also got the problem that Kosovo isn't recognized as an independent state by five EU countries. And that has been obviously a source of great tension. It's obviously of interest to all the neighbors in the Balkans as well as the EU. And we saw four presidents on stage debating that issue, Andrew. Uh, And one of the things that came up was an idea from the presidents of Serbia and Kosovo that they might do a border swap, that they might make their populations less multi-ethnic. Can you tell us a little bit about how that went down and what your reaction was to it? 
Yeah, um, I was just thinking when you were talking about, you know, there is a lot of history and people would even disagree about how far back you go. You know, you can literally go back centuries for this. I mean, just the, the brief backstory is that Kosovo was a province of Serbia under the old communist Yugoslav system. There was a widespread repression of the ethnic Albanian majority of Kosovo under Slobodan Milosevic, the Serbian leader. Tension built and built, broke out into a war, 1998-1999. That ended with NATO intervening on the side of the ethnic Albanians. Basically, Serb control of Kosovo ended at that point. It was put under an international administration. UN and NATO basically ran the place with local leaders involved. And then in 2008, Kosovo declared independence. And that declaration has been recognised by I think more than 100 countries now, but as you say, there are some important names missing from that list. Russia, which is a traditional ally of Serbia, is one of them. There are five EU countries that don't recognise Kosovo. So they're kind of stuck in this limbo, and the EU has told them both that if they want to join the European Union, they have to sort this out. So the big thing, as you say, recently has been the talk about border change and that is has long been considered a taboo by the international community. Uh, after the wars of the 1990s, people said, we don't accept this, we don't accept drawing borders along ethnic lines, trying to change borders to match ethnic groups is a recipe for violence and trouble and instability and also is a principle we don't want to support, so we're not going down that road. And now the leaders of both sides are floating that prospect, although they haven't given us the details. But maybe a question for you, because you were in the audience. How did you experience it as someone who, who knows you know, a fair bit about this issue but hasn't been immersed into it? And what was the atmosphere like uh, on the stage and in the audience? It was a very interesting atmosphere. People clearly felt like news was being made during the session. You could feel a sort of tension in the air. And it would rise as each new president got up to speak. The president of Slovenia was one of those uh, speaking, the president of Austria, and the presidents of Serbia and Kosovo. It sort of felt as though they were making a legitimate contribution to the discussion. If the EU set them the task of settle this issue, then why shouldn't they come up with their own innovative solution? But of course, there's an impact for everyone else in the region. So I felt a little bit like the people who were reacting negatively um, were maybe reacting about the loss of their own control or role in the process. At the same time, innovation shouldn't lead to bloodshed. That's not really the point of being creative in politics. So I felt that the EU was reluctant to shut down the discussion, but was a bit uncomfortable with what was going on. We saw that from Commissioner Hahn on the stage. And then one of the other elements that has since come into the discussion that wasn't present during that panel session was that Federica Mogherini is going to be trying to shepherd the process at some level. And, you know, she has an interest in coming up with signature achievements and with the Iran nuclear deal looking like it's unraveling a little bit. We'll talk about that in the podcast panel. She needs some new big achievement before she's out of office. And she might be latching onto this as, as a thing that she can land before her term ends in 2019. Right. I mean, I think there's a legacy issue here for everyone, right? Time is short. As we know in Brussels, increasingly the talk is, you know, soon there will be European Parliament elections, soon there will be a new commission, soon, you know, they will need to appoint or reappoint a high representative for foreign policy. So in a sense, in some ways, that's potentially helpful because it gives people a deadline. And as we know in this business, people tend to work better with a deadline. But it's worth noting that I don't think, as you, I think, noticed from the panel the other day, the EU is a bit caught on the hop here. 
As you say, they don't want to shut the, the, the discussion down if these two leaders want to explore it, but certainly among certain EU members, I think Germany has been the most vocal so far, very wary about going down this route for the possible knock-on repercussions and and how Bosnia, fair is that, I wonder, because yeah. you have a situation where the Balkans is clearly treated as this problem child, as the proverbial powder keg that can just explode at any moment. And if they're ever to be proper members of the EU or have a long-term stable future, they obviously have to behave and be seen in some other light. If you are permanently treated as a problem child, you can't really be a full and functioning member of the EU. So I wonder, is this based on realism or is it based on some kind of condescension that's long been baked into views of the region? Right. It's really hard to know with this one because there are a lot of, you know, old Balkan hands, people who remember the wars of the 90s very well, were, you know, involved in a lot of cases in mediation or in the early efforts to establish stability after the Bosnian war in particular, people like Paddy Ashdown, who are very strongly against this idea. And so on the one hand, you can say, well, these are people who really know the region, know the people, and so they should have a pretty good idea of you know, what the reaction is likely to be. And of course, then there's another point of view that said, but actually what we need are people, some fresh thinking, some outsiders, people who are not instantly imposing a template from decades ago onto a discussion that's taking place now. And I guess we will see in the fullness of time who's right about this. But just briefly on Bosnia, I think the worry is that you do have a Serb Republic there. It's called Republika Srpska. It's a multi-ethnic region, but the name implies a Serb character. And it came about as a result of the war between 92 and 95. And the leadership of the Republika Srpska never misses a chance to basically threaten to succeed, to try and imply that really Bosnia as a country isn't really much of a country. And it's one of these things where uh, Commissioner Han was saying, well, if you can reassure us that this agreement really is tailor-made and applies only to the two of you, then perhaps it's okay. But, you know, you cannot control how other people choose to interpret an agreement, even if you're insisting that it only applies to these two. Indeed. Well, next stop in this journey is going to be September 7, when Federica Mogherini convenes the presidents of Serbia and Kosovo here in Brussels, I believe. So we will keep you up to date with developments. You are listening to Politico's Andrew Gray. Next up, I interview Julia Abner. She's a research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue in London and author of The Rage. I interviewed her in front of a live audience at the Outback Forum in Austria earlier this week. I wanted to start with the big picture first and foremost, and then maybe move into a little bit of your personal experiences working with extremist groups and what you've observed there, and then move it into some specifics. Like you were saying that the goal of people at the extremes of the political spectrum, they want dramatic societal change. And that terrorism is just one of the strategies they use to achieve that change. And then one quote really stood out for me. And the quote was, what we should be most concerned about is not the hacking of infrastructure, but the hacking of our minds. I was wondering, could you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, exactly. So I think terrorism is just one strategy. And in general, violence is just one out of many strategies. And I think ultimately what is a lot more dangerous are the manipulative attempts of doing almost like an information warfare or launching a psychological warfare against the establishment or against all of their political opponents and against the people who still believe in the values that are represented by the establishment in a way. 
And in a way, terrorism is also part of that strategy because it's often the starting point for then setting in motion dynamics that would lead to a self-destruction of, of some of these values that underpin the stability of establishment parties, of the mainstream, what they would call the mainstream media, and would make people doubt every single of those pillars. And we are somewhere along that road already, I would say, you know, and, and we've moved pretty quickly along that road, where people, maybe it's a third of the population, it depends a little bit on the country, but there are substantial minorities now who question whether democracy is even the best form of government. And considering that that is barely 25 years on from the fall of communism through half of Europe, where people have lived through very difficult times. I know that not many of us are still around from World War II, but clearly, you know, there were times when other uh, ideologies like fascism were ascendant around the world, and that was very damaging. Does it surprise you how quickly people have moved in that direction? In a way, yes, but... When looking at how much our collective identity, a lot of this is about, I think, the perceived loss of identity and the search for new identities and often the fringes, the political fringes, regardless of their ideology, but they offer really, of course, simplistic models to fit for new identities, new collective identities. And I think this perceived loss of identity has really happened in such a rapid way since the turn of the millennium that I think we shouldn't be surprised because of dynamics of globalization, technological change most of all, but also the migration crisis, of course, and the financial crisis. We might be surprised by the speed of it, but some of the underlying forces behind it, like the globalization of our economies and what that has done to change people's sense of economic security and their identity, like you're saying, they're well-established trends and they're not really going to stop. Even if we have what looks like trade wars on the horizon, it's not going to fundamentally alter some of those processes. So it makes me wonder, how much more do we need to prepare for the next stages of going down this road of fragmentation of our politics, of people turning to extremist parties? And then what can we do? Because I think we might be in our own filter bubble where we might not know how to talk to people who are suffering dislocation, who feel attracted to those sort of movements that you've been studying. Yeah, I think one of the most important issues is the use of technology by um, extremist groups, because that has really allowed them to, one, mainstream their ideologies, but also, for example, to actually penetrate some of the filter bubbles that lie beyond their traditional reach. And also sometimes it has allowed them to put a lot of political pressure on both civil society in general by launching basically massive scale campaigns that would distort or would almost lead to an illusion of what the public opinion is and would then lead and put politicians under pressure to take visible action, um, but also to intimidate political opponents or to intimidate, I think, also civil society actors and activists, journalists, researchers who would then no longer want to speak up anymore. I saw a lot of Italian, French, German, Swedish extreme right groups, for example, coordinate hate speech and disinformation campaigns in closed chat forums and then launch them on the mainstream platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And I think that is one of the main issues that we're confronted with right now is that we need to, as civil society actually also, we need to step up against this and I think counter some of these communications efforts mm -hmm. that where we see that the fringes are a lot more active, proactive in their communications. 
And now we've seen the European Commission, but not only the European Commission, but they've started to move more into really uh, pushing in a voluntary sense, but with a very strong push. You know, it's not yet the threat of regulation or laws in particular, but they're really working more now with the big technology mm-hmm. platforms to get people to take down terrorist-related content within 24 hours. There's more cooperation than there used to be. Do you think that's a sufficient approach or... Do you think ultimately we're going to have to move to much stricter regulation or almost like putting a tax on these companies where we just say the cost of your license to operate is that you have to employ armies of people to take this stuff down? I think it's an important starting point. I think, of course, removal of harmful contents, but also radicalizing contents or calls to violence is important, but it can only be part of the strategy. Because what's any law-based approach will not help to tackle the problem in the long run. Because there are always ways. Exactly. And extremists always find ways to circumvent legislation. And in fact, the NetsDG, the German legislation for the removal of contents within Facebook and all tech companies with more than 2 million users, has also had some negative consequences in terms of it has led to the removal of, for example, satire posts. Or There's always, of course, a challenge that comes with that because other countries, also, for example, China, might actually want them to introduce similar legislations that would act almost as a pretext for them to introduce harsher, even harsher, or justify their censorship. So I think there's always a problem with removal policies. And in the long run, it's much more important to strengthen civil society resilience to those and to raise awareness and to help and enhance the efforts that come to counter some of these efforts. Maybe now if we can talk a little bit about your experiences joining, watching, participating in some of these networks. Tell us a little bit about how you came to get involved in it or how do you join a WhatsApp group that is full of people who are radicalizing or are are radicalized? Because it just struck me as a really fascinating, brave choice to take for someone who's at the start of their career. To be honest, there were various different ways into the different groups because I joined a variety of groups, both on the Islamist and on the far-right side of the spectrum. Uh, For the Islamist extremist side, it was relatively easy because I've previously worked for a think tank that was founded by former Islamist extremists. One of them also knew, for example, Osama bin Laden pre-9-11, but they had de-radicalized, but they still knew how these networks functioned and in a way had better access to some of these groups or could tell me more about it. But then also, of course, online, it's always easier than offline. So I joined both some of these groups offline and went to events, but also by building up online identities both as someone who would possibly sympathize with ISIS, who would be a a credible recruitee for ISIS, or as a possible recruitee for far-right extremist networks. And for example, I spent some time undercover with Generation Identity, but also with the English Defence League in the UK, which are two completely separate organizations. But what's interesting about now we're seeing actually some collaboration between the two is that that's representative of also the trends that we're seeing overall, an attempt of the far right, regardless of their ideological leanings or the specifics of their ideologies or the specifics of their strategies, we're seeing an attempt of them to cooperate across borders, across ideologies, and really trying to maximize their impact in a way by going beyond any ideological differences or geographic distances. For some of the groups, it was fairly easy. For some of the groups, you just have to find online, at least you just have to find the right links. 
I did create, of course, several different accounts on different social media channels to build a credible identity. That took me several weeks to, um, to make that really look credible. On Facebook, it's almost impossible because, of course, you have to make friends with lots of people to have a credible account. But then there are all these old tech platforms already because so many of the extremist accounts have been suspended by the big tech firms. So it's sometimes easy to just create accounts on these alternative platforms. But then some of the neo-Nazi groups that I was recruited into online, they had quite rigorous application or application recruitment processes. So for example, for one of them, I would have to submit a time-stamped wrist picture to prove that I'm white or a genetic test to prove my ancestry. And do they have individual heroes in that process? Is it mm -hmm. a process like Brexit or a president like Trump or the Polish administration that where they look for inspiration and where they say, this worked here, let's copy and paste the model in our own country, or does it Absolutely. work differently? Absolutely. So that's one of the biggest rallying points for the far right and to come together and, and have this kind of convergence um, of different point of views were the recent elections in Europe. And I think the starting point was really the US election where several groups that would not traditionally not even get along across the far right, but then also some other fringe subcultures on the internet were coming together in a melting pot like on Reddit forums or on 4chan and 8chan and kind of finding common ground in their desire to bring Trump into power. And because that had such a big impact and some of them would also see Trump's victory as the success of their, in a way, their communication strategy, a lot of this was then imitated and copied by European far-right activists who would, we watched first the French, the Dutch, but then also in the run-up to the German elections, some of the German extreme right groups, and then in the Austrian election as well. And in Italy, now most recently, we're seeing the same happening in Sweden, also in the run-up to the Bavarian election. And it's quite interesting because they would always copy the playbook that the alt-right used originally in the US. So now because they believe in the value of, for example, mimetic warfare, or they're even using some of the vocabulary that was used by so um, mimetic warfare, that's mimetic a warfare new type of warfare based on memes. ugly memes online. Okay, Exactly, right. yeah. Fascinating. Uh, well, um, speaking of the alt-right, that makes me wonder about Steve Bannon and his promises to disrupt right-wing European politics via the movement. Mm -hmm. And as a journalist, I'm very skeptical of that. Something about me thinks that if a man could get into the White House, you shouldn't underestimate him or his efforts. But when you look at the sort of indicators that would raise a red flag for a journalist that something is happening, he hasn't really been able to recruit people yet to work in any structure in Brussels. There are very poor campaign finance laws in Europe, so it's hard to get a picture, but we don't see any massive donations or anything like that getting the ball rolling. And we see a history of the extreme right being unable to unite. So a lot of us will sit in our newsroom and we don't quite roll our eyes, but we sort of say, show us the proof. You know, this guy probably can't get things going in time for the 2019 European elections. But maybe it's a different picture when you go into Italian chat groups or Swedish election organizing events. Uh, do you see any indications that he might be able to get something going in Europe and that it could be a threat to centrist politics to the European Union in 2019? 
I think we shouldn't underestimate his ability to become a chaos agent. I also I doubt that he will manage to really, as he said, to really launch a coherent movement that agrees on, on every single line. But I think what could happen is that he would just feed different pieces and bits of information to the right people and help them in their campaigns by informing them about what the different subcultures on the internet, what the different also far-right groups would need and would want in a way to use that in their campaigns, in their online campaigns. And I think that's in a way what I believe has happened in the US. When he speaks about how he wants to do, I think, analysis and consulting in the run-up to the European Parliament elections, I think what he might mean is that he would, in a way, feed the right people of European populist parties with the information about what currently, for example, the youth cultures um, what the, the references, the cultural references are, what the vocabulary is that they use, what the insider jokes are, so that they can then make reference to those. And that would then, in turn, help them to turn these politicians into credible memes, for example, or contents that could go viral, that could be used in an online communications battle, as they would call it. And it strikes me, maybe, actually, the EU is more vulnerable than I was recognizing in that earlier comment. If you think back to what Commissioner Johannes Hahn was saying, he says that the Commission is looking very closely at trying to change its foreign policy settings, and not just the policies themselves, but this idea that you need consensus to mm -hmm. adopt a particular position. Because the vulnerability of a consensus process is Steve Bannon doesn't need to win an election. Other people don't need to get a majority position. They just need to find one or two governments out of the 28, soon to be 27. And you can start blocking things that way. So maybe his aim isn't to take over. It's to do a more ingenious disruption where via a simple organized minority system, you can really start preventing things, whether it's a sanction program or the approval of an enlargement program process or mm. you just stop the budget from being approved. It just takes one person to stop that. But I think it did surprise him that some of the leaders of the, the populist parties in Europe were not actually supportive of his attempt with the movement and immediately reacted by saying that they would not cooperate, like some of the AFD leaders, some of the Swedish Democrat leaders, whereas, of course, someone like Salvini or Le Pen would be, or, but even someone from within the Front National was, was saying that they would not want to cooperate. We've got the European Parliament elections taking place next year. What that is, is essentially 27 parallel national elections. And you might describe that as the world's biggest hacking opportunity. Given the lack of harmonized standards for voting systems in Europe, what do you think the risks are to that election from people who are either uh, state actors or other people who just want to disrupt the process? Mm. I think that's really, I mean, that's a really hard question right now. It's hard to say how good or how much of focus the EU has put on cybersecurity. I know that, of course, that Rob Wainwright was really putting a lot of emphasis on cybersecurity threats, and they've done a lot of analysis on this side. But I do think that it's become so easy as the, this year's DEF CON conference really illustrated, and even last year they already, the first hackers, young teenage hackers managed to hack imitations of voting systems, I think that it might even enable non-state actors to hack into the system. But of course, the ones that we should be most concerned about with the biggest capabilities when it comes to 
cyber and to, to hacking is, I think, state actors with an interest in destabilizing Europe or in impacting the election. And Russia would, of course, be one of the bets. But, yeah, it's hard to say at this point. And I think in the run-up to the election, even, for example, data leaks or those things would pose probably an even bigger threat because disrupting the processes is, in a way, you can repeat the elections, which would cause a lot of troubles, financial burdens, and so on. But I think in terms of really having a political impact, leaks, data leaks, hacks of national governments and their data or information transfers, I think that would be what could really possibly be dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's still relatively easy to pretend to be whoever you want to be in a way because you can just set up anonymous accounts, which is what they do all the time. So in a way, or at least extreme right activists have created, have sometimes even called on people to create 99 fake accounts in order to really amplify their communication efforts online. So they would probably not be upset by me setting up two fake accounts to get into their channels, or they would not really be able to justify being upset. We've spoken about the role of technology companies in dealing with hateful or terrorist content. I wonder what you think about the role of journalists in reporting on the sort of things that you've put into the book and the sort of activities of these organizations because they're not nothing. You said some of them have thousands of members, but they're not mass political parties at the same time. And I wonder at what point does a journalist become an enabler of some of this information uh, by giving it unnecessary publicity? And at what point should a journalist be providing appropriate scrutiny because if you don't talk about it then the thing creeps up on you and it's too late and so it's a bit of a catch-22 situation. It's a really difficult dilemma and I don't envy journalists nowadays because I think it's such a difficult job to get the balance right of reporting on fringe groups or not. There's a really interesting piece of research produced by the Data and Society Research Institute in New York And they were talking about a tipping point. It's called the oxygen of amplification. And they talk about exactly this dilemma that journalists and reporters are faced with. Looking back at how the media dealt with far-right trolls in the run-up to the U.S. election, how they gave them a platform in a way, or in a way helped them to mainstream their views by reporting them. There's also a big generational divide with some some of the journalists coming from an older generation not even knowing exactly what trolls are and then reporting mm-hmm. in a very... Um, Maybe that's the dividing line. When you are reporting through scrutiny mm-hmm. or skepticism, that's very different to putting Donald Trump live on your cable channel and saying, hey, here he is for 10 minutes doing something crazy in an airport hangar. This is something that also I think a lot of the journalists have learned from the ISIS propaganda and from the way that they would deal with ISIS because often in the beginning the propaganda materials that were actually produced and designed to get the media's attention to be sensationalized and that was the whole point of the ISIS propaganda wing in a way to make it as sensationalist as digestible for the media as possible or not really digestible because it's obviously uh, terrible pictures but to really get it out there and I think in the beginning a lot of what happened was just For example, Fox News still has the unedited video, the whole footage of the Jordanian pilot burning in that cage on their website. It can still be accessed, which is terrible because it doesn't have any commentary. It's a terrible video. But I think that's something that a lot of the media outlets did learn from what ISIS did. And the same is true for the Charlottesville 
organizers, they were explicitly thinking about the media strategy. They focused a lot on optics. In the channels, I was in the channel of the organization team of the Charlottesville rally in the weeks preceding it, and I saw their conversations on how they agreed on a common dress code, how they would stage the whole thing, especially with the ticket torches, to make it appealing and interesting, visually speaking, to get the media's attention. And so this piece of research by Data and Society Fund, uh, Research Foundation talks about a tipping point of where once they have reached a large enough audience online just by doing viral campaigns, it's necessary to report on them and to critically report on them. Because I do really, and I genuinely believe that it is important to speak to people that we disagree with and even people on the very fringes. And I also want to say that I really, I met some people that had legitimate grievances and not all of the people that I met within extremist movements were extreme in the same sense. I think some of them were there for political, for ideological reasons, but some of them were also just clearly motivated by other things and were just part of, of course, the group dynamics, but in a way were torn between, I think, some of them were even thinking about leaving, but had their whole social network and environment, all of their friends, sometimes even their family, in those movements. So, yeah, I just tried to put myself into their shoes, I think. That was Julia Abner from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Next up, the Brussels podcast panel. Well, now it's time to welcome back the Brussels Brains Trust. Hello, Lena Eberus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. And hello, Alva Finn. Hi, guys. I think we have a very big topic to mull over to begin with, that being Iran, Europe's relationship with the regime there, and how that regime is behaving, not only this week, but we've got some cases in the news that bring into focus the perils of getting close to Iran, let's say. So we have the case of the potential execution or the scheduled execution of Rahim Hossein Panahi. He's been getting a lot of attention on social media, a lot of people arguing that it's time for Western countries and Western people to stand up, not just to be sorry if the execution goes ahead afterwards. We've obviously also had the very well-publicized case of Nazanin Zaghari, the British woman who is currently imprisoned, who Boris Johnson made his big mistake over in trying to negotiate her release. And the pressure has clearly been coming on from the United States for companies, anyone that wants to do business with the United States to get out of Iran. So we have seen airlines, we have seen uh, car makers starting to withdraw, which is absolutely not what the European Union wanted. They were desperate for this Iran nuclear deal to stick. It seems to be coming apart. But in trying to make that deal stick, they now look a little bit vulnerable, let's say, stuck next to a regime that is pursuing capital punishment, which is something that the EU says it's adamantly against. Has the EU made a misstep and are they going to have to give up on this Iran deal? I don't think they will give up on the Iran deal. I think maybe Iran will give up on the deal. Now, um, Iran believes and is acting as the more, let's say, powerful partner of this deal and 
few months ago and we have talked about it in the podcast there has been some manifestations in Iran and the average citizen in Iran was going in the streets saying okay what are the fruits of this deal so now there's a situation where no one is benefiting neither the big multinationals the first company that went in there and signed the deal was Total and it is one of the first companies that they will phase out their operations by the end of this year and it's like a slippery slope so most of the great PR and great let's say attractive packages that the deal came for the European private sector is fading. Well, I'm going to come back to the the kind of human rights things that we were talking about, those two cases. It's my view that those are separate. Just as recently as June, the EAS released a statement about an execution in, in Iran. I will hope that this doesn't change the way that they speak out against some human rights violations in Iran. I imagine there are demarches going out about one of the cases that we were talking about, about Rahman. Now that's a phrase for a diplomatic complaint. Yes, exactly. Uh, Or not even a complaint, but sometimes actually the EU often sends out demarches about the use of the death penalty, which is at the core of its foreign policy on human rights. It even sends them to the US. So... If it does happen, I imagine that behind... But what is it? What's the point of that, apart from making yourself feel better? Well, actually, sometimes it works. And they often do it, for example, Indonesia, Thailand, people who execute, for example, European citizens. They send out demarches around that. And you would imagine that for Iran, if they receive a demarche in a very sensitive political environment, which is also including the deal... You would imagine that they would think twice about it. We know that Iran isn't treating its citizens any better than it was before the Iran deal was happening. But is there a point to keeping the Iran deal then? What I'm trying to figure out is, is there a strategic point because it empowers moderates in Iran versus hardliners who would want to, you know, potentially really bomb countries like Israel? Or no one's really advocating the benefits of the deal here? Well, the core of the deal is about nuclear weapons and I think that is always going to be the core if they are shown to continue to be doing their nuclear program that is when the bottom I think will fall out but anyway it as Lena has been saying about the business end of things you know that's the carrot and if you don't have the carrot are the Iranians going to keep to it I don't know the EU considers itself a human rights superpower. I think that was my observation about where it finds itself now with Iran. Is it okay that it's off striking deals, nuclear or otherwise, with a country like Iran that doesn't respect a lot of basic human rights when even a country like Australia has to sign up to human rights commitments to do a trade deal with the EU? Isn't this the EU being tough on one field but then turning a blind eye on another? I think this is really one of the discrepancies that sometimes the EU shows in many aspects and in in many sectors. You cannot pick and choose. It's not oranges or apples. They all have to be apples. If we are talking about human rights as an international issue, nuclear deals are extremely big, dangerous thing. And I don't underestimate the trade, but I think they should just apply what they do with the other countries. But actually, recently, the EU actually extended sanctions, human rights sanctions. They were doing at the beginning of the year to try and keep Trump into the deal. So it's not like they can't speak out against Iran. Like the Iran nuclear deal is not a trade deal. A human rights issue is a human rights issue, whether it's deal or a nuclear. Yes, but they also have separate 
human rights sanctions that they can Okay, use. here's one final question. I, yeah. I'd love to know from each of you how much the EU should risk the Iran deal by putting on more pressure or more sanctions in relation to human rights abuses. Yeah, I think that basically if they are not getting what they want from Iran, and also because the Iranians know that the US have already pulled out, I think they still need to keep the pressure on. I think they have to keep the deal, they have to enhance the deal, and they have to work with the Iranians for a better deal for the whole region and for the whole world. The region cannot afford another war and another confrontation. Indeed, but if enhancing the deal, which means putting more human rights pressure on Iran, causes the deal to fall apart, uh, when is too much pressure? And human rights and respecting the citizens, I think there's never enough from my part of the world. We still have a long way to work on that, not only Iran, but many other neighboring countries as well. Well, next stop will be the United Nations General Assembly in New York in the third week of September. We can probably expect to see some more action from Federica Mogherini's corner, from the Iranians themselves, never afraid to put on a show at the General Assembly down there on the East River. And of course, Donald Trump is not going to miss an opportunity, nor is Benjamin Netanyahu going to stay shy in his corner. So you can bet we'll talk about this again on the podcast. I think it's time to move on to a thumbs up, not necessarily a lighter topic, because it involves the sad death of Joe Cox, the British MP who was assassinated back in 2016, just before the Brexit referendum. But the city of Brussels has decided to name a square after her in a very prominent location in the downtown. So... Definitely getting a thumbs up from me. Yeah, it definitely gets a thumbs up from me. I think it was one of the most shocking events around Brexit, apart from the actual referendum result itself. She was out, you know, doing her thing for Europe. She was going out and talking to her constituents about Europe and was, yeah, murdered doing that. And I think it's a beautiful thing for the city of Brussels to recognise her in this way because it was something that I think really impacted me. Personally, I felt very 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 sad when I heard about it you know that's we we think about politicians sometimes as being sly or sneaky or an elite or whatever but she was out there doing her thing and she worked for several NGOs and always including here in Brussels that's part of the reason why people felt so connected to her here yeah so she she spent her life in dedication to other people and that happened to her so I think if she went out to bat for, for the EU she should be acknowledged in the city the home of Europe I think it's a double thumbs up one for choosing her and choosing to commemorate her legacy uh, in Brussels and a city she served. And the second thing is the city of Brussels is naming more streets with women names. So, yeah, well done, Brussels. And one final little thumbs up from me is I've been in Altbach, an Austrian town uh, up in the mountains uh, for their annual ideas forum. And I was going for a walk on Monday morning and I came across this cute little thing called an insect hotel. And I'd never come across something like that before, but it was basically a wall of bricks and other little constructions that were designed to be a welcoming home for insects. And I thought, how green, how cute. I'm glad that this little town up in the mountains is doing something like that. My mom has one. What? She bought it in Little. So you guys can go out and buy oh, your own. Where have I been? Your own Shopping insect. in my elite supermarkets, no, ignoring I, the, also, the insect people. I also used to work at Mundo B, which is a working space for NGOs, a lot of environmental ones, and they had one outside. But yeah, it's it's definitely becoming something that lots of people... So it's not save the whales, it's save the insects then. Well, I mean, they're a very, very important part of our biodiversity system and our our environment. So it's absolutely right that we should be trying to protect them. 
here's a call for the city of Brussels and Belgium to be inspired by the Austrians in this regard and have more insect hotels. Why not? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> some hotels are infested with something like insects in Brussels. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Lena, Alva, it was a pleasure being with you. Likewise. We're going to have to silence all this laughing uh, <laughs> before we anger too many people listening. As always, podcasting is a team effort. Thanks to Andrew Gray, Weidong Lin. And, of course, if you want to register and join our community, please do. Politico.eu forward slash registration. You'll get that podcast every single week straight to your inbox and invitations to any podcast-related events. 